This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got another interview for you. This is with Rick Ankiel. So that is a former professional baseball player that actually played with six different franchises between 1999 and 2013, but most notably was his time with the St. Louis Cardinals. So yes, I'm a Cardinals fan, but guys, this story goes beyond any particular team, any team that you're a fan or not a fan of. Because the thing about this guy, to just remind you of what he went through, he was a pitcher from 1999 to 2001. He was seen as a phenom. He was the next great left-handed pitcher. He was compared to Sandy Koufax. He was on one of the classic franchises, one of the six classic franchises in Major League Baseball. But everything changed in the 2000 season. Okay, so in the 2000 season, he had a great regular season. At the age of 20, he went 11 and 7 with an ERA that was 3.5, which was top 10 in the National League that year. But he very famously lost his ability to throw strikes. Okay, so if you can remember back the first game of the National League Division Series in 2000, it was game one at home for the Cardinals versus the Braves. And so the Braves were the team that he he loved growing up because he grew up in that area. He watched him. Greg Maddox was his favorite pitcher. Well, Greg Maddox was the opposing pitcher, but Greg Maddox gives up six runs early in that game, very uncharacteristically. So you're thinking this kid is just going to have a nice game. He's going to get his first you know playoff win under his belt, and it just didn't quite work out that way. In the third inning alone, he throws five wild pitches. There were certainly more pitches that could have gone wild, but there were five wild pitches and four walks before he was mercilessly pulled from the game by Tony La Russa. In his next game back, that was in the NL Championship Series, uh, game two against the Mets, he threw 20 pitches. Five of them went past the catcher. Then he pitched again in NLCS game five. He faced four hitters, walked two of them, two wild pitches. The Cardinals were eliminated in the CS that year, but it just started this downward spiral spiral for him in his career. He was sent down to AAA to try and regain his command, and the problems only got worse. He eventually was sent down all the way to rookie ball, right? I mean, there's a lot of levels of the minor leagues. He went all the way down to the very, very bottom, which is rookie ball. He dealt with injuries. He had Tommy John surgery, but it was a several years process. He had a brief stint as a reliever in St. Louis in 2004, but he really never regained his elite pitching form that everyone had compared him to, you know, basically all the greats from the left side of the mound at that, at that time. But in 2005, he actually switched to being an outfielder. I mean, just think about that. You're a professional pitcher, but he has the athletic ability and the talent to become potentially an outfielder. So he spent about two and a half years turning himself uh, from an elite level talent pitcher into a major league hitter and he made it all the way back to the big leagues in August of 2007. I mean, just an absolutely crazy story. The fans gave him, the best fans in baseball, reminder, gave him a long-standing ovation. And believe it or not, in his first game back in the majors, as an outfielder, he hits a three-run home run in the seventh inning. I mean, this made him a legend. I mean, two days later against the Dodgers, he had three hits, two home runs, three RBIs, a web gym play in right field. And that kind of just sent him on his way in his career as being an outfielder. But I love this quote from the late Charles Krauthammer. This was kind of posted around this time. His return after seven years, if only three days long, is the stuff of legend. Made even more perfect by the timing. Just two days after Barry Bonds sets a synthetic home run record in San Francisco, the natural returns to St. Louis. Just an absolutely incredible quote there from Charles Krauthammer. And he played in two, through 2009 with St. Louis. And then uh, between 2010 and 2013, he spent time with the Royals, the Braves, the Nationals, Astros, and Mets before officially retiring in March of 2014. This guy had an incredible career. Obviously, his story is amazing. It'll probably be turned into a movie eventually. But he became the first player 
since Babe Ruth, yes, that Babe Ruth, to win at least 10 games as a pitcher and also hit at least 50 home runs. It's just those two guys. Just an incredible career. But in April of 2017, Ankiel released a memoir entitled The Phenomenon, Pressure, the Yips, and the Pitch That Changed My Life. And it ended up being a New York Times bestseller. Uh, It was just an incredible book. And if you go back all the way to episode two, episode two of this podcast, it was called The Best Books of 2017. I listed it as my favorite book of the year. And if you go to our book list on our website, it's just www.undaunted.life backslash book list. It is listed as one of the 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list. And it's not just because I'm a Cardinals fan, because I'm a baseball guy, because it's the most uniquely written biography that I've ever read. It's absolutely incredible. But in the truest sense of the word, guys, the story of Rick Ankiel is a story of resilience. I mean, in the, in this podcast, we talk about so many different things, but kind of an undercurrent for his entire life is resilience, right? You know, we talk about the, the writing of the book. We talk about his career, what it was like mentally and physically going down to the minor leagues and coming back. You know, we, we don't just stay in the world of baseball. I mean, we certainly talk about the 2020 Cardinals. We talk about the situation going on with the Houston Astros, but we also talk about his tumultuous uh, relationship with his father. And the things that he went through and kind of how that affects his uh, relationship with his two sons and his wife today. You know, we, we got into some some spiritual conversation about, you know, was there a spiritual aspect to the stuff that he went through back whenever he was having all the problems with throwing? I mean, it was a really fantastic conversation. So guys, if you're thinking to yourself, I don't like baseball, I don't even know who this guy is, or I hate the Cardinals, whatever the situation is, I'm telling you, there is a lot to like about this particular episode. Regardless of your fandom, regardless of if you even watch America's Pastime, there's a lot for you to learn and there's a lot that you can pick up from Rick Ankiel's resilience and his ability to just get things done and overcome his situation. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Rick Ankiel, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you. Well, man, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today because a lot of people will recognize your name because your book, The Phenomenon, Pressure, The Yips, and The Pitch That Changed My Life, that was our book of the year for 2017. We uh, That was our second episode we ever did. We kind of did our best books of that year, and that was the book of the year that we named. And personally for me, that is my favorite autobiography, my favorite memoir that I've ever read. Could you, even just to start us off here, could you just tell us why even write an autobiography? Like, what was the decision process like for you and your family to to put that stuff down on paper and kind of give us an idea what the process of writing that with a co-writer was like? Well, you know, after I went through the throwing issues um, and then, you know, battled those throwing issues and and uh, worked my way through that and then came back to the, the big leagues um, as a pitcher and then later changed to an outfielder, um, you know, I got a lot of interest then I had interest to make a movie and I just felt like the timing wasn't right, um, to be in uniform. And my, my thinking was to have something at the box office or drawing that kind of attention would have felt like a distraction for not only me, but my teammates. So, uh, once I finally got done playing, um, the interest popped back up again, I kept getting questions about it. Uh, my agent, Scott Boris and some people close to me were like, listen, I think, you know, I just think this would be a really good thing. You could help a lot of people. And I know going through the throwing issues and um, some of those things, you know, there just wasn't a lot of literature about it out there. It just seemed like a lot of guys didn't want to talk to it, the former guys that had been through it. Um, And I felt like, you know, after talking with everyone um, and kind of sitting down and going through it, I felt like if I could sit down and, um, you know, tell my story, talk about what it did to me, what it, what it was like, all the things that I had to deal with. And if that would in turn help someone else, 
uh, get through some hard times that they were going through, then why not do it? I'm, I'm certainly glad I did it. It was very therapeutic. I didn't expect that to happen. Um, but it did. And, and I, it's funny because I know going through it and, and just, you know, the mentors I had and talking about this and all the, you know, the psychology side of it that I went through, um, I felt like I had talked about it enough and I didn't realize uh, that in writing this book, maybe I hadn't because once I did write the book and the interviews and talking about it and bringing it back, uh, just back to life, I really felt um, a sense of inner peace and a, a sense of calmness that I hadn't had before I did it. Well, and the cool thing that you mentioned is I think the style that you wrote it in is one of the reasons why it was so readable and why it was so interesting, because this wasn't your typical baseball autobiography, right? Oh, I was born at this time. And then it's it's all very linear. Typically, it's I was born at this time and place. This is when I discovered the game. And then I just kept going. The thing that was so interesting about this book is that it skips around. And it's almost frenetic. There are times where you'll be in the middle of describing something baseball related, and then you'll shift to something from your childhood. So why write it in that style? Because again, most memoirs are very linear when it comes to time. This one's all over the place. Why, why do it that way? Well, um, you know, and sitting down with Tim Brown, who is the the writer, the co-writer, um, you know, I felt like for me to tell my story, um, it needed to be truthful and it needed to be real. And I felt like, you know, I got to give him credit. You know, when you sit down to do something, a project like this, you know, really it's a big interview process and whether we're working on, let's call it a chapter or a timeline and say we're working on the timeline being from the time I was eight years old to 12 years old. And I'm just throwing out stories and thoughts and whatnot. You know, he did a really good job of picking and choosing what stories to tell and which ones not to, because you, you know, anyone's life, you start looking at those type of timelines and geez, what stories do you use and which ones do you not, you know, right. and that's kind of what makes a story um, flow. So I, I got to give him a lot of credit, but for me, I, I really just felt like I needed to be open about the entire thing to, to, for anyone to grasp, you know, what it was about my story. And, and, um, you know, I felt like we did a good job of that. I really do. Yeah, I think it came off very well on your end. I agree that y'all did a great job with it. But you mentioned it being very therapeutic. But what some people may not know is that you actually recorded the audiobook version of your autobiography as well. So what was that like, you know, basically reading your book, but reading your life out loud? Did that did that kind of help with the therapeutic nature of things or just kind of describe that process to us? Um, you know, it was interesting. And when that topic came up of, do you want to read this or hire someone else to read it? I felt like, no, I want to be the one that reads it. Um, and in doing that, I usually talk really fast. I'm pretty animated. I'll use my hands quite a bit. Um, and in re recording something like that, you really have to slow it down and then try to dictate the sentence the way it should be, you know, should be said. So it makes sense. So it was, it was a learning experience. Um, and then to be honest, there were some parts of it that, you know, when you're, when I'm reading a book, let's say I'm not reading it out loud, but I'm just reading it. Um, you know, you're kind of fast reading and I've read these chapters so many times that it felt like, you know, a lot of it, I already knew what it was going to say, but you're trying to reread it and get it right and make sure there's words in there that you would use and all the things that come with that. But reading it out loud and slowing down and trying to put it together the way it should have been put together. There were some, there were some sentences or chapters or, you know, a, a time here and there where I would think, man, that doesn't make sense now that I'm saying it out loud. So um, it was just an interesting experience. I'm glad I did it. it. It took three days. The first day I felt like I wasn't even close. Um, the second day I felt a little better and the third day I felt better. So it's funny. Cause after the third day, I, I said to the people that I was working with, Hey, maybe we should go back and re-record the first day. And they're like, no, it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> we can edit it. It'll be fine. So it was fun. I enjoyed it. 
Well, very good. So getting into the book, some of the things you talked about. So the thing is, from the very early stages of your life, you obviously knew that you were a tremendous athlete. But it's always interesting when you have someone that is so gifted by God with this this plethora of abilities, what sport they end up gravitating towards and what, why they pick that sport. So for you, as a tremendous athlete growing up, why did you choose baseball? Um, you know, it was it was just I was just always good at it. Um, it was one of those those things that I was just good at. And and we always had the Braves. I grew up in South Florida, so we had TBS down here and Braves were always on. Um, and I think watching it, I just fell in love with it um, and then fell in love with the Braves. And then I, I knew that's, or I just felt like that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I wanted to be, like, you know, just a little boy's dream. Um, it's funny because I wasn't actually uh, the greatest of athletes when I was young, younger. Um, but as I got older, I just kept working harder and it started coming. And, and obviously the talents i was definitely blessed with a good arm. Um, but all around athlete, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was the greatest of athletes, uh, you know, from that eight to 12 or even 12 to 15. And as I got older, I started to get better, but uh, I was just drawn to baseball for whatever reason. Well, the cool thing about that, there was actually some research uh, that I read not that long ago is talking about people that end up being the elite of the elite athletes. So think about a major leaguer or someone that starts in the NBA, that type of thing that for the most part, none of those people were really good athletes as a kid. But the kid who was the fastest kid in elementary school or the best pitcher in junior high, those are the ones that kind of flame out because either they stop working hard because it just comes so easy to them. I'm thinking about a guy that I grew up with. He was a left-handed pitcher and just no one could touch him. I won't say his name here, but just no one could touch this kid. And then he got to high school and he kind of started making some stupid decisions and, you know, was partying and, and not really focused on baseball. And it was all of a sudden the entire game of baseball caught up to where he was, he was untouchable two years prior. And then all of a sudden, you know, he was just kind of another left-handed pitcher at our high school kind of a deal. But the thing for you is speaking of high school, you made your major league debut at the age of 20. So, so you were just a couple of years removed from high school. Like you were, you were in, you know, biology class and now you're pitching in the major leagues. I mean, what was that like being so young and being in the big leagues? You know, at the time, it felt like that's what it was supposed to be. And I mean that it just, you know, my goal was to be the best pitcher on the planet, uh, best player on the planet. And, and it just seemed like the harder I worked, the better results I was getting. And that kind of just, uh, I won't like reaffirmed for me that I needed to work hard and, and the results just kept coming. And it doesn't always go that way. Um, but it felt like I just kept putting in the time. I kept running more, kept doing every, everything I could possibly do. And the results just kept coming. So uh, when it all happened and I got, you know, got the call to go up to the big leagues. It was a surreal moment, but at the same time, it just felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. And this is my time. And here we go. It was freaking awesome, to be honest. I mean, I had assumed that would, that would be awesome because as a little kid, you wanted to be there. And then by the age of 20, you're already there. But that, that kind of leads to the next question, which is when you're a teenager or when you're in your early twenties, no matter who you are, it's pretty easy to be cocky. But it's even easier to be cocky when you're in the major leagues. You've got this arm that is just incredible. It's almost bionic. How hard is it to stay humble to where you stick to the grind and, and actually keep working hard at that age when you have that much ability? Um, I, I'm sure it can get away from you. For me, like I said before, though, my goal was to be the best ever. Um, so the working hard didn't stop because I knew to, to get to that platform, to get up there with the elite, the best of the best. Um, that I was going to have to keep working. There was there was no just cruising into this, um, not doing anything. So for me, um, I was cocky, but I was humble at the same time. Um, and I think that was just because of the way, you know, that my life had gone up to that point, right? I knew 
um, what it was like to be on the other side of, of that or not get what you want or, you know, just be in a space you don't want to be. Um, so I appreciated where I was and, and it was, I don't know, man, it was, um, you know, when you get up to the, you get that call, you're in the big leagues and you're looking around and you're playing with guys that you've watched on TV. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, your Jersey's hanging right next to him in the locker right next to him. It, it's a pretty overwhelming feeling, but, um, that alone, I think if you step back and just take a look at it, that'll keep you working hard in itself because it's like, I want to stay here. Not only am I here, but I want to stay here and I want to be the cream of the crop that's here. And to get that, and I'll say, well, I guess one other thing too, is the guys around me were working hard. I mean, you know, those guys that get to the big leagues and stay there, it's not by accident. And, um, you know, for the most part, almost on every team I played with the guys that were the best in the room worked hard in the gym, in the cage, on the field, extra work. Um, and maybe that was just the path that I was on or the people that I was around, but I'm thankful for it because it gave me a chance to see what they did to stay there so I could follow in their footsteps. Yeah, I'm glad you you talked about staying there because that's one thing that people fail to realize when they're looking at baseball players is, okay, it's it's probably the hardest sport on, on the planet to get to the upper echelon because there's so many minor league levels and to actually make it to the major leagues is incredible. But there are guys that make it to the major leagues for a weekend and then they never see major league action again for the rest of their lives and so being able to stick around in a major league clubhouse is it's kind of its own set of uh, challenges and talents but for you it it all kind of changed and and you go into this in very great detail in your book which everybody on this podcast make sure you go out and grab the book it will be in the show notes the link to it so you can go pick it up yourself but it was game one of the 2000 National League Division Series at home against Atlanta. On the other side, uh, you got Greg Maddox, uh, and at the time, he is the Greg Maddox at that time. He's still one of the greatest pitchers in baseball. But in your words, in that game, what happened? Um, you know, it's funny because we talk. you talk about the Braves, and here I go, my childhood team. I'm pitching against my childhood hero, Greg Maddox. Um, all these things are lining up for me. Like the stars are aligning, right? It just seems like I was, this is destiny. I'm supposed to be here. Um, you know, we go up and put six runs against Greg Maddox, which is unheard of in those type of situations. Right. Because like you said, he was the guy then. Um, and for me, all I, I just kept telling myself to just pitch a good game. I don't have to do anything extra. I don't have to try harder. It doesn't matter. Just get out here, throw strikes, let the defense work. And here we go. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, third inning, I threw a pitch that just didn't quite feel right. And, um, it really wasn't even that bad of a pitch. I've went back and watched a lot of it here recently. Uh, Mike Matheny, who was our, our catcher all year had cut his hand with a hunting knife right before the playoffs started. So he couldn't play. And we brought in a, a catcher by the name of Carlos Hernandez, a great guy, older guy, veteran guy. Um, but he really just hadn't caught me that much. And sometimes when I would try to throw a fastball to the inside corner, to a righty, um, I would come across, I stepped across my body and I would cut it sometimes and it would just, you know, it would cut and it would cut at 94, 95 miles an hour and sometimes cut more than others. And if you haven't, you know, if you didn't catch me all year, you might not know. Anyway, I, I one cuts and it gets away from him. And, but in my mind, I felt like, oh my gosh, I just threw a wild pitch on national TV. Um, right, and right. then it felt like things just started to unravel. I bounced a curveball. Um, I'm out there, I'm trying to slow things down, but I'm not able to, I'm using all my keys mechanic wise um, stay back, all the things that always got me back on track and nothing seemed to be working. And, um, it just started spiraling out of control. I started bouncing balls off the, off the backstop. And at the time, um, I had no idea what was, what was going on. I didn't even know what the word, the yips meant. Um, I didn't really know what anxiety meant. Uh, I was just young and, and full of, you know, here I am, I'm supposed to be here. I want to be a hall of famer and, and those type of things. So, 
Um, at the time, to be honest, I, I, I was in shock um, because I really didn't know what was going on. And, and that's just, you know, it was it was tough to swallow. And then it happened again. The next game I started again against the Mets. Um, and that's when I knew, OK, maybe there's something wrong here. You know, it's not just a mechanical flaw that I can fix in a heartbeat. Well, in the book, you you referred to it by many names, and you obviously said the yips just there, but you referred to it as the monster, the thing, you know, the phenomenon. And so the thing is, is if you've been a baseball fan for any length of time, you've seen this happen with other players. And you pointed out in the book, you have features like Steve Glass and Mark Wallers. You've got infielders, Steve Sachs and Chuck Knobloch. I remember growing up watching Chuck Knobloch wondering like, dude, it's just from second base. Just throw it to first. Like, what's your problem? But even catchers who, you know, obviously they, they have a very important job being able to throw runners out of second base and kind of control the running game, but like Mackie Sasser and Gary Bennett Jr. But for you, looking back now, now that you've had some time to kind of marinate on what that time period was like, can you better understand now or, or even identify what exactly it was? Um, man, I mean, it's really, you know, the, to, to just try to swallow this up and, and make it put it. I, I mean, it's the, the losing your confidence is gone. Um, anxiety, your emotional system, just, just your flight or fight response just takes over. Um, and, and your body starts to not listen. There was times, you know, that I would look down and um, I couldn't feel the ball in my hand. It was in my hand, but I couldn't feel it. Um, and you know, when I moved in, that was, so all that happened in 2000 and in 2001, when spring training started, I I feel like there was just more pressure than ever. It was just, you know, all the headlines everywhere. Um, I couldn't get away from it. And, and the thought of having to throw would, would give me anxiety at the time. And, um, I mean, it's crazy because, you know, I would sit there and I'd think, Hey, you know, what am I, I'm not afraid of this. And I really felt like I wasn't like, I'm not afraid. What is this? And all of a sudden my heart would just start racing hundred miles an hour when I'm sitting in my office thinking about pitching. Um, and it was like your emotional system gets out of control to where you can't control it and nothing, there's nothing you're doing will work. It's just, um, it's awful. And I, and I, you know, my heart goes out to anybody who's dealing with anxiety issues because it can just debilitate you. I mean, no matter anything you've done for your whole life, it doesn't matter. It can just completely shut you down. When if you've never experienced anxiety, like I have friends that have struggled with anxiety and I personally have never had that, but whenever they describe it, it, I mean, it absolutely sounds awful. It's like, I could think of a million other things I would rather do than to go through what you're going through at that time and to have uh, the lights and the national attention and the expectations of your teammates on top of your shoulders as well. I'm sure that would be very, very difficult, but you've, you've talked about this and I've heard other interviews before, but you know, the, the world famous legendary Tony La Russa, he, he said that one of his biggest regrets in his career in baseball, which is decades long, was starting you in game one of the 2000 NLDS. Your, your normal catcher that you mentioned, Mike Matheny, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't uh, catch you that game because of the, the uh, cut he had on his hand from the gift he got. The, the, you have the 6-0 lead by the third inning. Like you, you could have lost focus. You could have kept focus. But I guess the question is, is, do you think that any of those things ended up mattering in the end? Or do you feel like, you know, the thing, the monster, the phenomenon, do you feel like it was coming for you regardless of any of those other circumstances? I think it was coming. Um, you know, and this is, listen, hindsight is, is undefeated. Um, you know, but looking back at the time I had just one pitcher of the month, um, for September and I was pitching the best I had pitched all year. I was ready for that game. There wasn't, you know, I, I understand that he regrets it, but who's to say it doesn't happen if I pitch game two sure. uh, or game three or anywhere else, right? It, it's all, you look back and you speculate and you, who, who knows, right? Or if Mike was catching, does he catch some of those balls and I win the game, but does it happen the next year? You know, I don't know. So instead of 
wasting all my energy or spending too much time down that rabbit hole. I try to look at it like it is what it is. And I, I have to deal with it and move forward and figure out how to how to be me and, and how to get past it. Absolutely. And so the thing for you is obviously you were at the top of the world. Uh, you were being compared to Sandy Koufax uh, and you had a lot of things. You had a lot of expectations on you. So for you, what was it like going from being in the majors, being compared to world famous Hall of Famers, only to find yourself all the way back in rookie ball within a very short period of time? Um, it destroyed me. And, you know, one of the, the biggest things, um, or I'll say mistakes that I made back then was I thought that baseball was what made me who I was, not just what I did as a job. I really identified with the whole baseball um, stigma. And once baseball was taken away from me, I really had no idea who I was. I was completely lost. Um, it, you know, it's the hardest thing I ever went through, but, but honestly, I'm, I'm better for it now because, you know, I understand now that, you know, what you do for a living, whether it's baseball or something other than baseball, it's just what you do for a living. It doesn't make you who you are. Um, if you lose it, it doesn't have to take your identity away. So I've learned so much going through it um, and working with Harvey Dorfman and all the things that he's taught me. And, and um, you know, it's brought me to where I am now and and it's made me who I am now. And, and I can actually say, you know, I appreciate it. Now, would I have loved to see what would have happened to the um, 21 year old pitcher if that never happened to me? Of course, I'd love to see what that uh, career would have looked like, but it didn't happen. And so, like I said before, instead of wondering or, or thinking, man, I wish or I could have and, and, and having regrets and the woe is me. I try to stay away from that. And I think, you know what? I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have my kids. Um, you know, our past happened for a reason and I'm, and I'm, I am where I am for a reason. So I've tried to appreciate it. Well, I think that's a, a very healthy perspective because most people, I mean, you, we all know people like this. They just lament the, the hand they were dealt and everything about the, their life is, oh, it is woe is me. And they just want everybody to know about their sad story. But you took your sad story and turned it into something literally legendary. And so obviously the, your story was going from being a pitcher, going all the way back down, trying to figure yourself out, not being able to do so, but then reinventing yourself as a position player. So I guess the question is, is literally, why even try? to reinvent yourself as a position player. Why not just quit? I mean, that, that would have been the, the reasonable thing. Everybody would have understood it. Hey man, you gave it your best shot. The organization gave it their best shot. It just didn't work out, but why not just quit? You know, at the time um, I was 25 years old. I really didn't know what I was going to do without the game um, because it was all I knew. And, you know, some of the stuff I went through as a, as a, as a child, baseball saved me then too. It was always a place I went for inner peace and it was just kind of like my arena. So, you know, I, I, in a way I did quit, right. I walked into Tony's office when I was a pitcher in 05 and I said, Hey, I just, you know, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, I've given this everything I have, but what it takes for me to come out here and compete day in and day out the 20, the 23 hours around the game or around the time that I got to be here is the most frustrating and the hardest thing that I've ever been through. Um, and it really felt like that. And I, and I understood that it was starting to change my relationships with my friends, with my family. It was changing who I was. Um, and I tried to look at it from the perspective of is if, if this is what it's going to be like for the next five years or six years or eight years or whatever was going to come of that. And this is what it's going to take for me to compete. I don't think it's worth it. It's not healthy. Um, I started to not feel like myself whatsoever. So I walked in and said, Hey, you know, I can't do this anymore. And um, you know, Tony looked up at me and he's like, you know, are you sure? Why don't you take a day? And I said, you know, I'm positive. I don't need a day. Um, and I walked out and I went home and then, um, Scott Boris called and said, um, Hey, what do you think about being an outfielder? 
And I remember at the time, I kind of thought like he was being a jerk almost because it took <laughs> it was it was so hard for me to walk away from the game, and it took um, you know every ounce of courage that I possibly had to just say, okay, I'm finally going to not do this anymore. Um, and I didn't even know if I was going to be able to do that, but I got to that point. And when Scott called and asked me that, I felt like is nobody hearing me? Like I just retired. Like this is it. I'm done. Um, but then I started to walk around the house, and I started to allow myself to visualize myself. Um, working my way back as a hitter. And then I got to the point where I visualized myself hitting a home run back in the big leagues as a position player. And this overwhelming warmth feeling came over me. And I felt like this is good. I'm going to do this. This is going to happen. And I immediately picked up the phone. I called Scott back and I was like, I'm in. And he said, I'm going to call the Cardinals um, and we'll be calling you back. And Walt Jockey at the time, who was the general manager, called me back within three minutes. And he was like, Rick, if you're in, we're, we're in. Show up tomorrow and you'll be an outfielder. I said, yes, sir. I'll see you tomorrow. And then off my outfield career went. And I mean, that's just an incredible story. Even just kind of getting the backstory with Walt and Scott Boris, just kind of figuring out like, obviously you still have these raw talents that can be kind of pointed in another direction, but you were on a long road. I mean, that just, that just didn't, you didn't automatically become a major league outfielder that day. It was still a long road for you, a lot of development, but you showed a lot of promise the whole way through, but your life and really the lives of most baseball fans that were watching at the time changed actually on August 8th of 2007. Everyone talks about August 9th, but on August 8th, you got the call for the, for the second time really in your life, you got the call that you were going to the big leagues. I mean, what was it like hearing your AAA manager, Chris Maloney, tell you that you were on your way back to the big leagues, but this time as an outfielder? Well, it's funny because we were in Tacoma and our plane got delayed. And so we were, let's say we were supposed to leave it. Like we had a day game that day. It was a Sunday, I believe. So um, uh, the flight was supposed to be at six. It got delayed. Now we weren't leaving until midnight. Um, so everybody was just sitting in restaurants, having something to eat. He's like, hey, let's just all meet back at the terminal at, you know, say 1130. Um, and all of a sudden he walked into the restaurant that I was in and he said, Hey bull, um, Tony just called and you're playing right field tomorrow in the big leagues. And so I looked at him and I said, um, you need to repeat that. Cause I got to make sure I heard you right. And, uh, it was, it was incredible. Um, it felt like all the hard work that I had put into, to, to becoming an outfielder. And it was a lot. Um, everything was starting to open, you know, it was like, here's these doors opening again. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a chance to go back to the big leagues and I'm going to be playing next to Jim Edmonds and a lot of my, you know, friends that I have up there. And, and, uh, it's, it's hard to put into words. I wish I could do it, but I can't. Um, and then, you know, um, I get back in the first game, you know, I end up hitting a home run in the, in the seventh inning, which was the most incredible feeling, um, ever. And it's another one. It was just moment after moment. I remember I was, I called my, at the time when I got, when Chris, let me back up when Chris Maloney gave me the word that I was going back up. So I called my mom, I called my wife. My wife was in Memphis, which is our triple a team, um, home city. So she starts packing up the apartment. We fly all night. We land at like seven in the morning and now we're driving to St. Louis. Um, I actually missed, um, like I got there a little bit late when I walked into the clubhouse, everybody was there, the high fives, the hugs, everything that came with that moment, I think would have been enough. Um, honestly would have been enough. I would, I could have not even played that night. I mean, just as happy, just the way that went. Um, but I did play uh, and I ended up hitting that home run. It was just absolutely incredible. It was, it was, it's out of, it's out of this world. 
it's hard to really even imagine what that emotions could have been like because you can tell like and you you can see this if you watch enough baseball you can tell when your your teammates actually like a guy because you'll have a guy that does something incredible and literally the 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 whole dugout loses their mind and then other times guys are kind of reserved in their energy and their excitement maybe because that guy's kind of a jerk but you could tell that that the guys were genuinely happy for you everyone in the organization was and the thing about it Rick is you could argue that the moment you took the field the moment you ran to right field in the top of the first inning, that you became a guy with a sports story that was at least worth remembering. But what you did in the bottom of the seventh inning turned you into a legend. So after starting your career as a starting pitcher, you claw your way back to the majors as an outfielder. But in your first game back, just like you said, you hit a three-run home run in your first game back. So so tell us about that particular at-bat. Tell us about the result. What did you see, and, and how did it all work out? Um. All right, so I, I mean, I, my first at bat, um, I remember I got in the box, and you would think after all the things that I've been through up to that moment that I wouldn't even have any nerves left. But I was as nervous as that. I was as nervous as I'd ever been. It right. was strange, and I was laughing at. It. I'm like, I'm, what am I? What am I nervous about? Like, who cares? You know? Right. Um, I swung at the first. I mean, I was swinging before the pitcher let go of the ball. <laughs> there was no way I could even sit there and take a pitch. It was pretty funny. But I am popped it up. Uh, then I ended up striking out. And I felt like it was like, you know, you could almost feel that, like, is this real? Can they, can he hit, you know, what is this? Right. Um, and then that, and then that seventh inning at bat, um, I ended up in a two, one count. Doug Brokow was pitching and he threw me a slider kind of down in the zone. Um, I got a lot of barrel on it, but I kind of had to let go and I kind of just top hand flicked it. Uh, we call it walking the dog in baseball. Like if you were to flip a yo-yo and kind of right. walk that top hand forward. Um, so when I hit it, I knew, I knew I had a chance. I didn't know if it was a homer yet or not though. So I dropped the bat. I'm running. I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I think I just got it. Um, and as I'm running, I'm looking at the ball, looking at the right fielder, looking at the wall, trying to judge where this thing is going to land. And once, um, I knew it was a home run, it it just, my, you know, my emotions exploded. I, I couldn't, I went numb. I couldn't feel my legs. Um, I wish if I could go back I would run around the bases a lot slower than I did, but I had so much adrenaline pumping <laughs> for me that I couldn't even slow it down to enjoy it. I felt like I ran a hundred miles an hour. And, um, you know, when I touched home plate and I was walking toward and I'm going towards the dugout, I could, you know, the fans were going crazy. I could feel the ground shaking. Like it was, it was so surreal. Um, looking at the dugout, you're seeing everybody high-fiving each other and waiting for you to get there. It's, it's just an unbelievable moment. And then a curtain call from the fans, you know, if I could have sat down and wrote, a script out of how I wanted this to play out. I couldn't have wrote it any better than it played out. When to be honest, me going back to even watching that game, I remember because it's kind of those same questions. I struck out. He looks a little bit, a little bit amped up. And I remember that swing. I remember when you took that swing for the home run, I was like, ah, he got out in front of it. That's off the end of the batter or something like that. And then, whenever the camera just kept panning back and panning back and panning back, I I could remember me sitting there like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then it's like, Oh my gosh, it's out of here. Like, it's just that incredible sense of how could this possibly happen? And it was in that moment, everyone's just so elated and so excited. They forget about the pitches that went to the backstop in the playoffs. They, They just forget about all these other moments because at that moment you were a major league outfielder hitting home runs. And so that, that was an incredible moment. That's certainly a favorite moment for Cardinals fans everywhere. But I, that's not actually my favorite highlight of your career. So you probably know what's coming. My favorite highlight of your career was actually May 6th of 2008. So you're playing against Colorado Rockies in Denver, and you had two outfield assists and a home run. But no one cares about the home run. But you have two outfield assists and a home run in a game to help the Rockies uh, lose that game, help the Cardinals win 6-5. to five. But the throws that you made 
Both of them were from either deep center or deep left center in a ballpark that has a gigantic outfield. If you've ever, guys listening to this, that's ever seen the ballpark there in Denver. But you nail both of these runners in the game at third base. Both throws were literally impossible. There's there's no way possible that those throws can be so on the on the point and on the mark, but they were. So what do you remember about that specific game and kind of take us through what those throws were like? Yeah, so the first one, you had a runner on first and second. The guy on second is Willie Tavares. So as an outfielder, when you're looking at the play ahead of you, um, and we have one out. So the play would be, I usually set up in center field at a point where I, if I have to go backwards, there's no way I can throw the guy out at third. I need to throw the ball to second to keep the right. runner at first right. at first. Um, when the, and Todd Helton was, was hitting, right? So now you're in between, like, maybe I need to have a step or two back anyway, because it is Todd Helton. He's got a lot of power. He can hit the gaps. Um, we don't want to let him get to third or the runner from score first score. So now I'm maybe a step or two back than I would normally be. Um, and Willie Tavares is one of the fastest guys in the league at the time. So it's like, all right, so even if I come three steps in, maybe I shouldn't throw it to third. Um, uh, anyway, the ball was hit and I backed up, kept backing up. And then as I started to come forward, I don't know. I just had this like feeling that I felt like there's, I got you a third. There's no way I know I shouldn't try to make this throw, but I'm going to, because there's something inside of me telling me that this needs to happen. Um, and I just, I mean, I just threw the dang thing as hard as I could. And, um, luckily, you know, Troy gloss played it perfectly, act like it wasn't coming. Um, and the ball was a perfect strike. You know, I think that's the messed up part about the yips is I was more accurate from 300 feet than I was 60 foot six. Inches, hey, but. if, as long as you're accurate from somewhere, like, I don't think it really matters. <laughs> No, there you go. Um, but yeah, it was incredible. And I remember watching it and I looked and, you know, if you watch the highlight, you see Willie Tavares turn around and look like, how did that just happen? There's no way that happened. And I know I talked to him after and they're like, yeah, I got, they tried to tell me that I wasn't running. He's like, but I was, I was running as hard as I could. But everybody was like, did you not run? Like what just happened? Um, <laughs> but it was incredible, you know, and then I get to the dugout and Tony uh, walks down and Tony LaRusso fashion, you know, because he he doesn't like giving away extra outs or extra bases. And, you know, if if you watch the highlight, if that throw's not right on the money, he's probably safe at third. And now there's runners at second and third. Um, So he's like, hey, that was a great throw, but don't ever effing do that again. Well, that's the thing is because it it, it just – was so against convention because yes, you, you got to keep that runner at first base. And with, with Tavares at second, it's like anything on the ground that makes it to the outfield, he's probably scoring at home. And so, yeah, I mean, and I think that was the throw that if Troy Gloss hadn't been standing there, it probably hits third base. Like that ball from on a line probably lands right on top of third base, but that wasn't even probably arguably the best throw you made that night. So kind of walk us through the second one. Um, All right. So then uh, the next one, there's nobody on, um, and Quentin Nia, who is their second baseman, was up, and he's quick too. And I was playing, so he's hitting left-handed. I was on the right side of second base. He's righty. I'm playing to him to pull on that right side. Well, he shoots the ball to the left center gap. So now I take off running as fast as I can. Um, and there's sometimes in that those moments where you could just almost give the guy a triple. So you would almost, I mean, you would run hard, but you might run at that 85% hard. To get there, you're going to give him the triple, make sure you get a good throw, keep him at third. But I was same thing. I was hauling butt over there, and I'm thinking, you know what? I got this guy. And in this situation, you do have a free reign where you can let it go because the pitcher's going to back up third. Um, if you overthrow or you off throw, 
you know, you, there's nobody on base. You really have nothing to lose in this situation. There was two outs. Um, so I took off, I get there and I just, I, I literally threw the ball as far as I could. Um, and again, Troy played it perfectly and Quentin, I think he slid a little bit too early. Um, if you watch the highlight, which we were able to get him out, but anyway, it was a great throw. Um, Troy made a great tag and it was, um, you know, I will say I was, you know, I always played it pretty humble in the outfield. And I think that's, that's one of the times that I wish I would have just, I don't know, shot a fake laser or <laughs> fake cannon or I don't know, bow and arrow or something. Cause it just, it was one of those moments that it kind of called for it. It was the second one of the game. I'd hit a home run. I mean, it was, you know, I'm not going to have a better game than that. Um, so I kind of wish I might've showed off a little bit, but you know what it is, what it is. So were those your favorite throws from your outfield career? Or is there another one that sticks out to you? Yeah, I would say the one, uh, there's one more, there's one, um, with Drew Storen. Um, he was our closer. We were tied. Um, so let me think here. We were, so we were in the ninth inning to tie game. This is a day game. We were in Cincinnati. Um, I actually had a flight home to go see my family because the next day we had an off day. So in Cincinnati, there's not very many late flights. So if this game goes extra innings, I'm probably not going to catch a flight. So, Fly ball hit to deep right center. Worst going back. He kind of misses it. It hits the wall. I'm there to back him up. As I'm grabbing this ball, I'm, I'm looking at the – I can see the runner out of the corner of my eye, and I see him start to, to speed up. And I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> um, so I'm hauling butt to grab it. And at, it's funny because in the split second, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I don't if I don't throw this guy out, you know, maybe the game's over, we probably, you know, whatever. We'll win. Um, if I throw him out – we might play into extra innings and I'm never catching this flight. I'm not going home. Um, <laughs> but I just couldn't do that to my boy. So, um, you know what? I just let this thing go again and uh perfect throw got him out of third. And it, you know, it's just one of those, you know, one of those great throws that happened in the bleak of an instant. And, um, it's just fun, you know? That's all. Well, I didn't know the backstory that you had to, you had a plane to catch, but Hey, if more outfielders just threw like they had a plane to catch, maybe there would be a few more outfield assists. We can, we can make that happen. But you had a very interesting quote from your book. It was kind of after this time period. And it was this, and the conversation began about my arm again and whether it was the best outfield arm in the league. And I couldn't help but smile at such a thing. This was the same arm that had almost run me out of the league. The same arm that had inspired so many career obituaries. So give us a little bit more context on that quote and, and why you felt that way. Um, you know, because listen, I was blessed with a, with a good arm. Um, and you know, and, and it's true, right? It almost, I was almost out of the game because of it. And then now all of a sudden I'm getting praised for it again. Yeah. In a different way because I'm in the outfield, but I'm as accurate as anyone. Um, you know, a lot of times when you grade people, you'll say, Hey, it's a plus, um, plus arm, plus accuracy. And a lot, you know, when we would always joke about it with our outfield coaches, like, you're like, plus, 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 we don't even mess with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it was, it's fun. It's neat. It's, you know, it, it almost, it felt like redemption. That's what it felt like. Right. Like my, my arm abandoned me or whatever you want to say is the arm or the brain, but it's all connected in a way. And now all of a sudden it's what's, you know, one of my weapons and one of my things that are keeping me in the league. Um, it's something that I worked at every day. You know, I go out there make my throws every single day, everything I could do to, to stay on top of that. And, um, you know, it became, now it became great again. It was awesome. Well, one thing that we talk about a lot at Undaunted Life is spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And so your life, if there's one word to describe your life up to this point, I think resilience would be fairly appropriate. You've showed a tremendous amount of physical resilience, obviously overcoming a lot of injuries, overcoming the things that you needed to overcome in order to be a major leaguer and play every day. 
obviously the mental resilience side, you, you had the yips, you had that thing that was just kind of always there, but you still found a way to be able to operate at a high level uh, at something that most people would never even experience. But one thing that I haven't heard you talk about a lot in interviews and didn't really see a lot in the book is I haven't heard you talk a lot about the spiritual side of what you went through and, and kind of what you're still going through as, as part of your upbringing and part of your life. Do you feel like there was a spiritual side to what you went through and how you were able to come out on the other side of it? Um, yes and no. Uh, you know, I think when I went through the ifs, you know, I was mad. I felt like, um, you know, like if, if we're going to say, Hey, you know, God controls everything or, or whatnot. Uh, my idea of what that was and whatnot, frankly, I was pretty pissed. Um, felt like, you know, why would anybody have to suffer this way? That's, that's what I felt like. And then, you know, as I went through this, I, I just started to feel like, you know, everybody, there's a God in everyone. I feel like, and we're all in control of it. You can't just sit back and think that, you know, good things are going to happen to you because you pray or good things are going to happen to you because you go to church or, or whatever. I feel like you have to, you have to make it happen. It's up to you. You put the energy out that you want to receive. You put one step up in front of the other, treat people the way you want to be treated or, you know, whatever your values are, et cetera. Um, but I feel like you have to make it happen. And I think, you know, going through the yips, it, it brought me to that moment and helped me understand, at least for me, like that, that's the the path I want to be on. So I appreciate your perspective on that and sharing that with us. Uh, one thing I want to transition into now is just fatherhood. So for me, uh, I'm excited. I just announced to everybody last week that my wife and I are pregnant. We're, we're in a third trimester. We're about to have a baby boy, uh, Lord willing, in May. And so we're very excited. But for you, you've got two sons. You've got Declan and Riker. So what is it like having two boys? You know, What's it like being a, a father to a couple of boys? And are they trending to be athletes like dad? Kind of give us an idea of what Declan and Riker are up to. Um, it's awesome and scary at the same time. Um, I feel like you're, I mean, it's, I think everybody has this internal question, right? Are you doing fatherhood? Am I doing it right? Um, am I making the help, helping them find their passion? Am I putting them in the right situations to be successful? Um, but no, it's fantastic. Um, Declan, he's my older one. He's left-handed. Um, he's just starting to get into baseball. He's very smart. Um, he's definitely a cerebral type of kid. Um, and my younger one, Riker, is right-handed, um, loves all sports. He's my shadow, um, fishing, golf, you name it. Wherever I'm going, he wants to go. Um, he absolutely loves sports. Um, he's, been, he's been into sports since the day he was born, it seems like. Um, so it, it's fun. It's neat. You know, they, they grow up in the same household. I'm sure you've heard this time and time again, but they're just they're different. I mean, they are, you know, they have the same rules, the same parents, but they're just, they're different kids. It's fun. It's neat. Um, they're seven and nine. So they're 17 months apart. Um, so that, that's fun too. You know, I feel like we're at the ball field or the soccer fields right now, almost every day a week, but I enjoy it. Um, it's fun being out there to give back to the kids, uh, teach them all the things that I've learned or picked up along the way or that somebody taught me. And, um, you know, I like it. I don't know what life would be uh, without them. And, uh, congratulations on, on, um, for you too, man. That's exciting. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I'm nervous to a certain degree, but it's like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not the youngest guy in the world. I've, I've had some life experiences, so I'm pretty sure I could keep this thing alive and I'm pretty sure I could at least point him in the right direction initially. But uh, a quote that I love from your book, these are actually two quotes that are on adjacent pages, but you say this, you can't pick your father. You're assigned a father. He was my father, but nowhere did it say I had to be his son, not forever. And so for, for me reading your book and rereading your book, Rick, I mean, if baseball is the primary theme of your book, 
your tumultuous relationship with your father would be kind of a close secondary theme. So you talk about him a lot in the book and, and I appreciate how much you talk about him. But it seems like every good and every bad thing in your life is just one degree of separation away from your fra- your father. D- does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, and, and that was part of the story. I mean, it is, you know, and, and um, you know, I think, you know, the, the day my first son was born um, and I just looked at him, it just really, it helped me understand the quote you said, like, I realized that we would never have a relationship again because some of the things that happened, um, you know, I just understood there's no way I could do that, uh, to my son. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I, and it's, it's, it's helped me just be a better father. You know, I'm very close to my boys and, um, it's, you know, it's, there's nothing greater. It's the best gift that life has to offer. Well, and I, I mean, I love how you're using some of the things from your life and I, you know, I won't spoil it for anybody. Obviously you can read it in the book cause you go into great detail, but you're allowing those things to inform your relationship with your boys now, which I think is an incredibly healthy thing to do now for, for any of us that, that maybe don't know. And I, I certainly don't know. Do you currently have a relationship with your dad today? I mean, you kind of just mentioned that that may not be a possibility. Do you think it ever could be a possibility? No. Um, no, I've closed that door. Uh, there's just some things that are unforgivable and, and, um, you know, quite frankly, I'm a better person without him in my life. And that's just where it needs to be. I need to do what's right for me and for, for my, you know, family and, and for what I think is right for my kids. So, um, like I said, I closed that door a long time ago and, you know, just moved on. Fair enough. So, so for you, obviously, since you go into so much detail in the book, I, I love it because it kind of gives us insight into, into your brain and how that works and how you're going to be acting and, you know, treating your family. Do you think that your relationship with your dad or, or lack thereof now affects how you view God? Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. You know, I didn't, we didn't, I didn't grow up in a household who went to church. Um, so at an age, you know, at an age when I got curious, I just started reading the Bible because I was curious about it. Um, and I wanted to know and understand, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. That's a great question. I've never really tried to look at it like that. Honestly, um, once I close that door to my father, I don't, I just don't, he don't even come into any kind of thought of anything, to be honest. Sure. Well, to, to not belabor the point, we'll move on in just a second. That That's one thing. The reason why I ask is because I've asked a similar question to other guys in my life that had, you know, guys that were first ballot hall of fame, bad dads. I mean, just horrible guys for a lot of the same reasons that your dad uh, was horrible in your upbringing. And some of them have gotten to a good place of acceptance. Some of them have not, but uh, the thing that's kind of a, a good idea for all of them to, to consider is how that affects how they are as a father today, which you've already kind of worked through that. But in addition to that, some of these guys, they really struggle to, to follow this Jesus guy that may or may not have lived 2000 years ago and their relationship with God and kind of how they view things because they're, they're still so stuck on, on how, how could a loving God have allowed, you know, my dad to treat me that way or to treat my mom that way or something like that. And so that would be my encouragement to you, Rick, as, as a guy that you, you barely know up to this point is to maybe dig into that a little bit further, because the thing about it is, is uh, the, the God that I love and the, the Jesus that I follow, you know, he can cover all of those things and he can give you the level of understanding that you can't get from really any other worldview, but don't worry, I'm done preaching. We'll move on. So the thing that was interesting uh, about your story is in 2018. So just a couple of years ago, there were rumblings that you were actually looking at making a comeback again, but not as an outfielder this time, but as a relief pitcher. 
So going from a starting pitcher to an outfielder and now a relief pitcher four years after your retirement. So kind of give us an idea as to what the thought process was there. What was kind of pulling you back to baseball? Why a relief pitcher? Kind of how did all that work out? Um, so I, I went and played in this um, game in, in Louisville um, where a bunch of retired guys go play against uh, some college guys. And it's a little tournament that we played in. Um, and I ended up pitching an inning. And uh, when I got up there and I started warming up, you know, the anxiety wasn't anything. Um, it was less than I expected, to be honest. And I just felt like um, I thought that I was, I still had a great arm. I still have a great curveball. I felt like, you know what, that was really fun. This might be kind of neat. My kids never really got a chance to see me play. Um, this could be fun. And when you, when I was looking at the game of baseball and you talk about big curveballs and high fastballs was kind of, you know, it's where it's at right now. Um, I felt like I can do this. And as a relief pitcher, you know, I understood too, like if I'm coming in to get a, you know, a lefty out, or let's say it's two or three guys. Now it's a three, three uh, person minimum. They just change rules. But still, um, you know, when you watch the game, a lot of relief pitchers, they might throw all sliders for the whole inning. Right. So I felt sure. like even if it's a day where I can't control my fastball, because when I went through the throwing stuff, I could still always control the curveball. It was just the fastball that I had issues with. Um, I could do that. I can change angles. I can change speeds. Um, I thought it would be really fun when I pitched in that game. Um, I strained what I thought I, well, I thought I strained my flexor. So I come home, um, Tim Brown, who wrote my book, writes an article, you know, he gave me a call and was like, Hey man, what's going on? I seen that you pitched. What are you thinking? I said, you know, it felt pretty good. I might give this a shot. Um, and then it just kind of got announced. It went viral. Um, I come home, I start training about a month later, um, the elbow just wasn't getting better. I ended up going to take an MRI and, um, they're like, you know what? You tore it and you need another Tommy John. I've already had a Tommy John. So I felt, um, I ended up talking to Dr. Proletta, uh, who was the Cardinals doctor. And I said, Hey, um, I'm not going to do a full Tommy John. I just can't do it. That's 12 to 18 months. I'm already 40 years old. I'll just bang the comeback. It's just not worth it at that point. And he said, Hey, there is a new surgery, um, out there called a primary repair where I, you could, if you're a candidate for it, if it tore in the right place, I'll have to take a look at the MRI, but you could be back in seven to eight months. And I, at the time I thought, you know what, I can do that. Um, I'll give that a shot. So I'm going to need to get this elbow fixed anyway. And, um, you know, I went through it and as I was going through that throwing program, I ended up, I didn't end up straining the flexor and I got hurt and, um, where I was in a throwing program compared to how much of the season was left. Um, it just mathematically, there wasn't going to be much left if I had zero setbacks from that point. And I, it, it just, it, it reminded me what being on the injured reserve is all about what being hurt and the rehab and everything is the part of the game. That's not fun. Um, and I just kind of lost the itch. I felt like, you know what, there's no way I want to have another surgery. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person that likes to go fish, be outside, do stuff. Um, the thought of possibly even having to have another surgery two years in a row. Um, it just, it just really took the taste away from me. And I just, you know, I felt like, you know what, it's, I think it's time to be dad and, and, um, be here for these kids and, and help them with their passions. Well, it's commendable that you could even consider that because I mean, I, you're right in, in modern day baseball. I remember Sergio Romo. I was at the 2012 world series. They basically won the world series because he threw a bunch of sliders. I mean, he strikes out Miguel Cabrera for goodness sakes to win the world series in four games. And the dude only threw sliders. You knew what was coming and you still couldn't hit it. So, but it's interesting. I appreciate you sharing with us kind of what that all looks like. But the thing for you is you're not really out of the game of baseball at all. You're, you're still the family guy. You're going to be there for your, for your kiddos and your wife, but you do, have this burgeoning career as a broadcaster. So you're going to be spending a lot of time on television uh, in support of the St. Louis Cardinals. And so what's it like for you being in the booth and or in the studio when you used to be out there on the grass? 
Uh, it's fun because you're still connected to the game. Um, and that's the part of it. I feel like the game is still inside of me and, and being able to be a part of it, being able to be a part of the Cardinals organization um, is a big deal um, for me. And I, you know, I raised my kids to be Cardinals fans. You know, we, we live down Amen. here in South Florida, but yeah, exactly. We live down here in South Florida, but listen, the Cardinals are just, you know, for me, um, everything that I went through with them, they drafted me, but just the Midwest people, the fans, the way that they adore the team. Um, it's everything I think that, you know, that it should be. And I want them to to be a part of that and understand it because it's funny, you know, living down here um, in South Florida, you know, everybody moves from somewhere else to here, right? So we don't have the traditions that St. Louis has. So being able to bring them there and show them that, see the sea of red, um, show them what that's all about is incredible. And um, for me to be, you know, just being able to still be a part of the game in the booth, give my opinion of what I'm seeing, um, I think it's a unique situation that I'm in because I did play both positions, right? So I can tell you what I think that they're that they're doing or thinking or what they're trying to get done um, and give you that perspective. And there's nobody else out there that can do that. So um, I, I've enjoyed it so far and, and looking forward to the future as well. Well, if Cubs fans aren't already sick of this podcast, they're about to be because we are going to talk about the 2020 Cardinals. Uh, so the, the biggest offseason need uh, that most people saw for the 2020 Cardinals was getting an impact bat. And they pretty much haven't addressed that. I mean, this offseason has been rather quiet. They re-signed Adam Wainwright, who's probably going to be, you know, fourth or fifth uh, type starter. You got uh, Matt Wieters, who was re-signed, but he's going to be Yadier Molina's backup. Probably the most significant thing they did this offseason was signing free agent pitcher from Korea, Kwang Hyun Kim. Uh, There were some other minor deals along the way. They lose uh, Ozuna to the Braves, which I'm not terribly disappointed about because that's another team that can pay for him to be wildly inconsistent. But essentially, at least on paper, there were no big time signings or trades. What exactly is the plan here, do you think? Well, you know, I I feel like I laugh at that sometimes because we were one series away from being in the World Series. So that's true. That's true. At some point, it's like, well, what are we looking? You know, why are we so mad here? Right. Like we put ourselves in a position to be really good. Um, You know, and when you look at the seasons that some of the guys had, um, when you go with Goldsmith, like, you know, they really didn't perform up to what we think that their potential will be. And I'm not saying a young guy who's overperforming. I'm saying guys who've been in the league for a long time and what we know they can do. Um, So I think when you take a look at that, and then for me, when I look at the young guys who just got playoff experience, right, that's going to make them better. We got that experience. We almost got there. Um, We did sign the lefty pitcher, right? How's that going to look in a division where there's some pretty good lefties that we need to get out? Um, to me, when I look at it, uh, I'm happy with where they are. I mean, I feel like we should be happy with where we got, and that, that was with the team that we have. Um, and why not come out and see these guys, see what they can do with a little bit more experience under their belt? Yeah, and there's some good guys that are in camp that that have some opportunities now because with Ozuna leaving, the logjam in the outfield has kind of uh, eased up a little bit, so there's going to be some guys that are going to get some looks. Um, a lot of people have talked about this this offseason, but it seems to be a lot of smoke and no fire, but why do you think the Cardinals organization has not taken that big leap to reach out and acquire the Colorado Rockies star third baseman, Nolan Arenado, who is a top five position player in the game of baseball. He's also just now entering his physical prime. Why do you think there hasn't been more uh, focus on potentially making that move? Well, I think there was, um, and I think there has been. I I think that it just, you know, I'm not sure if the Colorado Rockies actually wanted to trade him. Um, It almost felt like it was more of a, well, let's just see. You know, why don't you wow me and blow my socks off with what you're going to give us? Um, 
because it feels like if they wanted to move him, they could. I mean, just like everything you just said, I mean, this guy's a beast, right? He's an animal. You, you could put him, he's going to make any team better. There's no question about that. Right. Um, so the fact that he hasn't moved makes it seem like they don't want to get rid of him, right? I mean, because look, he is the guy. I mean, I'm sure a team, whether it be us or someone else, could put a package together that they'd be happy with. Um, but it hasn't happened. So for me, I kind of look at that like uh, maybe they don't really want to trade him. Um, you know, and I think you have to make smart decisions that's good for your team long term and what they're looking at and what we're trying to do. And I just don't think the stars have aligned, but I definitely think they're always and I mean this about the Cardinals. They're always trying to get better. They're, it's not like they're not. Um, it's just the situation hasn't presented itself. Yeah, and that's one thing that's interesting. It'll be fun to watch the situation with Arenado because he's clearly unhappy. He's clearly at odds uh, with the Colorado Rockies. And I think it was just yesterday on MLB Network, uh, they reported him saying a quote that he doesn't care about having his number retired. He cares about winning a World Series. And so the obvious implication there is that he doesn't feel like Colorado is close enough and has the pieces to be able to compete in October, whereas another team might. So it'll be interesting to watch that situation. So you mentioned some of the Cardinals players last year that maybe didn't perform up to how how they had previously in their career, namely Goldschmidt, also Dexter Fowler, and so on and so forth. But there are two players that I think are integral to this year's Cardinals success. But in your opinion, who do you think is more important to the 2020 St. Louis Cardinals? Matt Carpenter or Carlos Martinez? Ooh, interesting. Um, I'm going to go with Carlos Martinez because um, the impact that he could have if he's healthy and what he can do is far and beyond. Um, you know, that could be a huge addition. I mean, you're talking about somebody with unbelievable stuff, unbelievable sinker. Um, he's going to get his ground balls. You look at the way we can play defense. I think that plays into that. Um I think Carp is a big piece too. I don't want to underestimate that, but you know, as a hitter, you know, there's eight other guys, not including the pitcher that, you know, might be able to get it done that day and we can still win, um, which we did last year. We proved that. Right. So for me, I, I think Carlos, if he can come out and, you know, be lights out, well, that's a piece maybe you weren't expecting. Um, that is going to be a bright shining star. Well, and with, with Michaelis going down, and, and we're not exactly sure how his forearm issue is going to go uh, as we progress into the season, you're right. Carlos Martinez has all the skill sets and all the abilities to be right up there with Flaherty. I mean, if you go into a playoff rotation and you've got the experience of Wainwright somewhere in the periphery, but then you've also got Flaherty and Martinez throwing in ways that we know that they can, that's a formidable opposition for just about anybody. So the, the interesting thing about this offseason, though, Rick, is – you know, people are wanting to get, you know, tabs on their team and who's our team signed. And there's been obviously a lot of money spent this offseason. You got the big trade for Mookie Betts and David Price. Like there's things happening, but nobody can stop talking about the Houston Astros situation. I did. I did an entire podcast episode on it. I, I thought that it was reprehensible what they did. I thought MLB's punishment. I mean, basically $5 million fine, four draft picks, and you know you suspend a couple of guys that the organization fires. I think just about every team in the league would take that deal if, if it meant they got a World Series and all the windfall and all the money and all the prestige that comes with that. But for you as a former player and now as a broadcaster, someone who's still in, integral to the game, What's your read of the situation? Because we're seeing so many players come out since spring training started. And I don't think Rob Manfred had the, the slightest idea how angry players would be that the players themselves got immunity and wouldn't receive any punishment. But, but for you, in your opinion, what is your read on this situation with the Houston Astros? 
Um, I think they took it a step too far. I mean, look, there's always been people trying to steal signs. And I mean that from on field stuff, right? When you're at second, sure. um, when you're at first, like that's part of the game. We're trying to read tendencies. Um, it's just part, it always has been a part of the game, but using the technology in that way is a step too far. Um, I'm, I'm tired of talking about it. I feel like, you know, as far as the players being all angry, I, I understand it, um, completely understand it, but it, you know, it was the players association sure. that was wanted immunity. Right. Right. Um, so they need to, to look at that, um, and understand that as a whole, that's, that's what happens. Um, you know, so I don't want to get too far into it. I, I think it was a step too far. Um, and I, and quite frankly, I'm ready to move on. Let's get on with the excitement of spring and, and let's start playing. And here we go. Um, you know, they are a very talented team. And I mean, that as a Houston Astros, I think they're going to have a tough road, um, getting past all the criticism. I don't think it's going to be easy, obviously, as it's playing out to be. Um, but that is a talented group. And um, it'll be interesting to see if they can overcome that or not. And uh, I mean, I'm just I want to get on with baseball. I mean, you know, it is what it is. All right. Well, we will get on with baseball, but there, I do got to ask you one more question. If you were a pitcher right now, don't you think you would at least find a little bit of satisfaction in plunking one of those guys this season? Just, just a little bit, just a little bit. No, I honestly, I think like I would have, I've been disappointed in myself that I can't change my signs, like look in the mirror and be a man. They knew it was happening. Sure. That, that, that's, I mean, the, you know, the teams knew what was going on when you're hearing a trash can getting banged or something that doesn't seem right. You're going to, I mean, listen, everybody's always nervous or thinking somebody has signs from second. I mean, that's why you see the catcher come out so many times, call time and they're switching signs. I, I think you have to sit down and do a better job of, of moving your signs around. You need to take responsibility too. You can't just, Oh, they were cheating and blah, I'm going to hit them. Like, you know, take responsibility. It's your career too. So fair enough. Well, I appreciate your perspective, but as we end here, I'm going to ask you a bunch of rapid fire baseball related questions. So you're going to give us a quick answer on all of these and then give us just kind of a little idea as to why you pick it. So you ready? Yep. All right. Who will be the MVP of the 2020 St. Louis Cardinals? Oof. Um, Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt. Why? Because uh, I think he's going to come back to to play how he can, hit how he can, and he's he, Gold Glove defense shows up anytime he takes the field. So um, you're you're already going to have that, and I think his bat's going to show up. All right. Who is the greatest St. Louis Cardinal of all time? Oof, man, that's a tough one. Um, Stan the man, Stan Musial. Kind of hard to go against him, but why? Um, just because. Well, listen, he was a pitcher first, and then started hitting. So obviously, I got to respect that. <laughs> um, but I mean, what a hitter! Just unbelievable, and what an unbelievable man. Um, the stand, the stuff that he did on and off the field. Uh, I think that's kind of set precedence into a way that you know, for me, when you look at Cardinal players, it's always good people. It seems like we always do the right thing, or they always do the right thing. But I think that's kind of bred. That's the way the organization works. And I think, you know, he was a part in setting that. All right. Who would make a better Major League Baseball manager, Adam Wainwright or Yadier Molina? Um, ooh, I think they both would be really good. Uh, but I'm going to go with Molina just because of the way I've seen him handle many different things behind the plate at once, never get lost, nothing ever speeds up on him. Um, he's a very um, intelligent baseball person. Cool. Who is your favorite Major League teammate? Ah, uh, man, I had so many, it wouldn't even be fair to pick just one. Um, well, Dad Gummin, I'm going to make you pick one. You got to pick one. Just give no, us one. Um, I'll go Xavier Nady. Okay, so so why him? Um, Just funny, man. Gets it. Um, You know, at the time we played together, we were both kind of role players. We weren't playing every day. Um, So we really bonded, Uh, got together, and just kind of tried to keep each other positive. 
All right. Which current Major League Baseball player do you like to watch the most? <sighs> Man. Um, God, these are all tough questions. There's so many young, bright stars. Um, and I mean that. So, I mean, I, I, let's say I'll go with uh, I'll go with Flaherty pitching because I like to see where, you know, just he's really turning into his own, you know, just his own thing right now. It's fun to see his, his rise and what he's becoming. Um, and as a hitter, gosh. Um, look, Mike Trout's fun to watch. There's so many young guys. That's, that's tough. That's a tough question. All right. Which current MLB player reminds you the most of you? Clayton Kershaw. Okay. Clayton Kershaw, one of the greatest left-handed pitchers ever. So why is that? Because that's what I thought I would have been. Sure. Just, just an, I it's unbelievable. He's been this good for this long and he's obviously turned from a thrower into a pitcher. So I would agree with you there. Mm -hmm. Who as a hitter, who was your least favorite pitcher to face? Oh, uh, Brian Shaw, this little lefty sidearm guy, uh, that pitched for Milwaukee, he threw maybe 78 miles an hour, but nobody <laughs> on our bench lefty wise could get a hit off this guy. I don't even think we got one out of the infield for the entire year. Oh man, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. All right. Next one. If you could have gotten one at bat against any pitcher in MLB history, who would it have been against? Uh, Mariano Rivera. And I was, I was on deck and then. Our manager changed his mind at the last minute and went with the no! right. Yes. Um, uh, I just wanted to see it. I wanted to see it in person and see what that cutter looked like, and I just didn't get the chance. Cool. If you could have pitched against any player, and I think I know who you're going to say, if pitched against any player in MLB history, who would it have been? Babe Ruth. Exactly. I knew it because you yep. would strike him out, yep. wouldn't you? Yes, I would. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they didn't have they didn't have lefties throwing high nineties with uh, big hooks back in the day. So you would have ate no. them alive. I'm pretty sure. Strike them All out right. and then take them deep. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Who is the most underrated current player in Major League Baseball? Uh, um, it was Anthony Rendon before this offseason. I think before the World Series, um, and he got a chance to show what he could do uh, on a national scale and actually got the attention for it. it, it Anthony Rendon. All right. Who is the most overrated current player in Major League Baseball? Mm. Hmm. I don't know. I'll have to come back to that one. I got to look. I don't have a list out right now. There's probably All right. We'll, guys, we'll, yeah. we'll circle back. Who had the best outfield arm in baseball history? Wow. Um, from the people that I got a chance to see play, um, I would say Vladimir Guerrero. The strongest, maybe not the accurate, but I've seen him make some throws that were jaw dropping um, to anyone, like the strongest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Absolutely. All right. Next one. When his career is over, will Mike Trout be considered the GOAT? Yes. All right. I don't think you need to give any more context than that. I've got one last question, but I am going to go back. Who is the most overrated player currently in Major League Baseball? Man, I want to see a list of numbers right now. Um... I honestly don't have a name for you. I don't. All right. Well, I'll give you a name then. And All this right. is a guy that I really, really like. It's got to be Bryce Harper, just because with that contract, you've got to be at the top of war and in the top three in MVP voting every year. And since he won the MVP, he's kind of been all over the place. Now, again, I love Bryce Harper as a player, but it is kind of weird seeing, you know, his struggles. And I thought he was going to do much better in Philly his first year than he did. So that's my one. But okay. I do too, but one. I also understand okay. too that, um, and I'll just say it because we're on it, right? Um, sure. You know, a lot of times these contracts aren't just about what you can do on the field, even though you think they should be, 
right? Because got to sell jerseys. You got to do all kinds of jerseys. He's going to sell season tickets. All those things happen. I mean, he's a bona fide superstar. There's no question about that. That is what I tried to explain to some friends that just didn't understand his deal. And I was like, guys, there's a reason why his jersey went to the tippy top of all of sports, above LeBron James's jersey, above Cristiano Ronaldo. As soon as he signed, they signed, they sold more jerseys home and away for the Philadelphia Phillies than they had of any player in a long time, probably since Ryan Howard was in his prime. And so it's like, you got to understand it. You know, he's got to sell hot dogs and he's got to sell parking spaces, all those things. But at some point, I do want to see him get back to his old form. But the last question I got for you today, Rick, is this. Who is the greatest baseball player of all time? Man, um, hmm, greatest of all time. I'll just give you my favorite of all time, which is Ken Griffey Jr. Um, just being able to watch him come into the league at 19 and do the things that he could do athletically, the beautiful left-handed swing, um, gold glove defense, the arm, everything. That That's my favorite player, so I'll go with that. Which, who's yours? Uh, well, I grew up when Ken Griffey was coming up, and so – my favorite player growing up was Ken Griffey Jr. as well. I mean, you couldn't ignore the swing. But for me, when you're talking about the greatest player of all time, I've got to go with Babe Ruth just because in the area in which he played, being able to win as many games as he won as a pitcher, and then in addition to play the way he did on the offensive side of the ball, it's different. I can see the arguments because he wasn't the most athletic guy. He, you know, he didn't play the field well. Like I, I get all of those things. But I'm also with you. I think if Mike Trout continues on his trajectory, we're not going to be talking about him in the same sentence as maybe you know a, uh, a Mickey Mantle or Roberto Clemente. We're going to be talking about him in terms of Babe Ruth, in terms of Willie Mays, in terms of Hank Aaron. I think he's going to end up being the greatest player of all time. I really, really do. Uh, the unfortunate thing is he plays for the Angels. The Angels just... It's like they can't figure themselves out. Hopefully uh, Madden can kind of help that because I don't want him to be the greatest player of all time in a sport and that nobody ever knows his name. They don't, they don't know to pay attention to him. So I can hope, I hope the angels can get a little better for his sake, but I, I well, do Rick, too. yeah, well, Rick, I mean, that's all for me. That's all the questions we went everywhere in this podcast. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I'm good, man. Thanks. Awesome. Rick Ankiel. Thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. I mean, wasn't that awesome? I mean, I told you from the jump that even if you're not a baseball guy, even if you're not a Cardinals fan, whatever, there's something to glean from that interview for everybody. I mean, just his story is absolutely incredible. And guys, we didn't even scratch the surface on the stuff that was in the book. You've got to go get the book. It's called The Phenomenon. It's available everywhere. If you're an e-reader, go ahead and do it that way, book reader, whatever. Or if you're an audio guy, again, he records the audio uh, for the audio book. So definitely check that out. But guys, I told you from the beginning, we're going to keep bringing on guys like that and just always give us the benefit of the doubt. Even if you don't know who it is from the beginning, or if you're not sure how it applies to you, we will always bring it to you. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or Stitcher and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, you got to give us a five-star review if you think we deserve it. That is how this podcast is going to continue to get out to guys like you is if you share it, if you give us a review, give us those five stars and let people know about us. All right. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2020. So if you want me to come speak to your team on your podcast at your men's event, hit me up info at undaunted.life. Again, the email is info at undaunted.life. 
The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at UndauntedLife or Facebook.com backslash UndauntedLife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember... Keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.